Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Welcome back, folks. We are joined by Ben Albright, CEO, independent insurance agents and brokers of Louisiana Agent Service Corporation. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, Noel. Glad to be here. Ben, we've uh, got a, a what I think is an, an insurance crisis uh, that's been brewing here for some time. Recently, there's been a number of articles. Sam Carlin with The Advocate um, authored one talking about how Louisiana has welcomed uh, small insurers and um, because of the way that they've structured themselves, it seems as though we're not really getting the biggest bang for our buck. Your thoughts? Yeah, Noel. um, So I'll start by saying I represent insurance agencies, not companies, but we are obviously intimately familiar with how a lot of these things work. And what I would say is that some of the small companies have failed, and that has caused a lot of problems for policyholders and, frankly, for our agents. Um, but I'm not sure that I agree with the premise of the article that the structure, the MGA structure, is what caused that. Um, it is true that some of the ones that went down were MGAs, but there are a lot of other ones that are the MGA structure that did not go down. And, frankly, there are outside causes that is really what's behind it. So if you would, for the benefit of the listening audience, uh, describe what an MGA structure is. Sure. So it stands for managing general agent. And what that means is that a insurance company somewhere has hired someone else to administer the policies, often including um, underwriting and claims capabilities. You've seen this for a long, long time in the London markets because they're deployed all around the world and they don't want to necessarily have a office of Lloyd's of London in every single place that they're writing business. So they do business through these third parties. Um, The difference here is that in some of these cases, these were small companies that came in that did not have enough um, back reinsurance to cover a significant catastrophe event and they didn't have enough capital surplus to pay claims after the event. And so it's not necessarily the fault of the managing general agent arrangement as it is the um, reinsurance and capital requirements that the uh, companies had. But a lot of these arrangements, though, uh, this affiliate model, it's it's not a long it's not a arm's length transaction, right? It's one and the same principles. The owner of the insurance company also owns the managing general agent structure, correct? 
Uh, that's the case in some cases, but not nearly all of them. Um, many of them are completely separate entities. I used the example of Lloyd's of London. They are right. a long stand. They're possibly the oldest insurer in the world, and virtually all of their business is transacted through this structure. And it's not them that owns it; it's someone else. But you're absolutely right that there are some cases where the um, owner of a company will also form a NGA or um, something similar. I should say, though, that the Department of Insurance does regulate those contracts. The, the Department of Insurance looks at the contract between an admitted insurer and a managing general agent that they are contracting with to do the work. So they get to see the fees that are being paid and all of those things to make sure that it's all above board and that the company still meets the required capital surplus requirements. But what happened, in, you know, what was pointed out in this article, uh, 11 of the 12 companies had this structure that that sent a lot of money off the books of the insurance company to this MGA, this managing general agent, this, this uh, affiliate. Um, and a lot of the profits were taken there because uh, because of the regulatory oversight of the Department of Insurance over the insurance company itself, where they don't have the breadth and depth of that authority over the MGA. Is that correct? Um, so what I would say is that it is true that there is the ability for them to more easily take profits out of a company. That is one reason that you might organize this way. But I have not seen evidence that there was any improper handling of funds or anything like that. And I don't think that Sam Carlin in his article um, shows that there has been any evidence of that. There is an investigation, I'm un I understand, from the article into at least one of those companies. Um, but what I would say is that the, comp the insurance company, who is ultimately responsible for paying the claims, still has to meet the required capital surplus and reinsurance requirements at the Department of Insurance in whatever state they're domiciled, regardless of um, whether they have an MGA contract or not. And that's the fundamental thing that tells you whether they're going to be able to pay their claims during a storm event or not. But in this case, um, obviously, when we made the look-see, we end up finding something different because these companies went belly up. And, I mean, right. there's a and whole I, host of reasons. There's a whole host of reasons for it. But when we're moving policies from citizens to these companies that are coming in that we're attempting to lure uh, to come here, once we do the and and we do the audit of the company, how often do they go back and, and, and audit that company again during that year? Because there's a lot of activity, and they gave, uh, in Sam's article, he gave one example of them buying a, a deer hunting camp and using sure. that, you know, for the, for the purposes of, of client development and so forth. Um, that That's not something that, that the consumer expects to see, right, uh, that we're we're buying assets like that, especially when we're when we find out we don't have coverage. Yeah, absolutely. I would never say that there has been no improper conduct by insurance companies. Frankly, some of my agents are probably the maddest people in the state at insurance companies, because in addition to having their own policies, they had to deal with it on their professional side. But I would say that, again, the, the issue is 
not with the the structure. It's about making sure that they are they have the money that they need in order to pay claims, and that can be in the and in capital surplus, or it can be having a reinsurance contract where they pass the burden of paying claims off to the reinsurer essentially. And so what I would say is that what actually brought these companies down is the the claims relative to how much cash and reinsurance they had. They had lots of attritional losses from lawsuits in Louisiana and Florida, and then they had these huge storms, hurricanes, Laura, Delta, Zeta, Ida, and that's what sunk them is they didn't have the reinsurance to survive a storm like Ida coming through. It had nothing to do with the fact that it was a MGA arrangement. Well, we don't really know. Let me ask the question. Let me ask the question this way. So you you as an agent, you represent an insurance company. What is your confidence level that you have a complete picture of the financial strength of that company that you represent? I a complete picture absolutely not. So um what I have is uh I have to have some faith in the regulator. Uh, wherever they, that company is domiciled, so if it's a Louisiana domiciled company, the Department of Insurance in Louisiana, if it's a Florida domiciled company, the OIR in Florida, um, they get to see everything in the books. And so they are supposed to be making sure that there is sufficient uh, capital surplus and sufficient reinsurance. The other thing that we get is the rating agencies. And I'm just trying to hone this down because this is what I don't understand. So insurance companies have the availability of going into reinsurance markets and coming out of it, right? And there's not necessarily obligations, affirmative obligations placed on the insurance company to inform the regulators when they change the amount of the book of business that they've laid off in the, in the reinsurance market. If in a perfect world, what would you like to see change to raise your confidence level? So in a perfect world, I would love to have lots of AM Best A-rated, very large, multinational companies writing business in Louisiana. But that's not the world we live in. Unfortunately, we are not viewed as a state that is very conducive to writing insurance profitably. And so most of those very large companies have left our state to do business elsewhere instead. And so what we're left with are these smaller companies that are more thinly capitalized, that more of the uh, load is being passed off to reinsurance. So you're relying on getting that reinsurance contract just exactly right, which is more of an art than a science. So I'd love to see more of the book of business be with these huge national carriers, which is how it is in most states. It's only really Florida and Louisiana that has such a huge concentration of our business in these smaller insurers, and that's a function of larger insurers do not want to do business in our state because of the legal environment and the claims environment because of the hurricanes. I hear this all the time, um, but... You know, when you look at it from the consumer standpoint, and I mean, I could go through anecdotal story after anecdotal story. I, I've never been a plaintiff's lawyer, but I am a lawyer. And, you know, I, and I've, I've had issues, not many, thankfully, with insurance companies that want to play a game. And as soon as I tell them I'm a lawyer, it's amazing how things change, right? And then what I'm asking for is not as obnoxious as I was led to believe when we started the conversation out. 
um, you know, which I find to be um, very interesting. But it's true that the more business they lay off in the secondary market, in the reinsurance market, the less money that they can make because it's an expense item, right? Yeah, it's absolutely true that the more of their own capital they they are risking, the more profit they are able to make. And that's why it's important that the Department of Insurance has requirements around how much reinsurance they have on the books based on their policies in force and um, policy exposure. So the, the likelihood of satisfying their investors, uh, and when you say it, you, know, you want to reach that right balance, that's really a guessing game. And it's really a risk, it's, it's a risk assessment as to how much risk that company wants to take on uh, in order to satisfy their investors, to give their investors the 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 expectation or the actual return on their investment, because the, the insurance principles themselves created the expectation. Would that be fair to say? I think it is fair to say that there, there it is impossible to completely reinsure your book of business. The, no, the way I get the reinsurance that. market is too complicated. So you're always making a trade-off between how much reinsurance you buy, which gives you more protection for your book of business, and um, how much profit you can make. And you're right that there is um, a balance that they have to find there. Um, and that's why it's important to have some minimum standard. But uh, you, you're right that it, you're, you're never going to have completely perfect reinsurance because it's not it's not a specific number like it is. You have to reinsure for how many storms are going to hit that pay out in reinsurance for the number of storms that are going to hit and then for the specific perils that are insured. Um, so there's a lot of different variables that go into it, and it's not just a, a, a single number policy. So, Ben, one of the things that I've advocated for, and I'm curious what your reaction would be to this, as we try to move policies from citizens to um, the market, and we know that we have thinly capitalized smaller companies that are coming in, why would we let them have so much geographic concentration, um, both you know south of the I-10, I-12 corridor? We know that that's where the highest risk is. So why would we not be handing off policies to ensure that they don't have that type of concentration? Because we know we've had it happen enough here that, and history tends to repeat itself, that when you give these thinly capitalized companies that much geographic concentration, they go belly up. They, 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 there's no way that they can support the amount of liability that they have out there. We know this going in, but we still do it over and over and over again. And I, I just, I don't understand that approach. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, so I think uh, generally speaking, I agree with you that you want to spread your risk geographically and across a number of different variables as far as having a diverse portfolio that you're not going to have every single policy have a claim all at the same time. Um, so obviously there's, again, a balance there where you want to make sure that the regulator is keeping an eye on that and ensuring that they have sufficient capital and reinsurance for what we call the probable maximum loss. 
which mm-hmm. is largely affected by that geographic concentration, while at the same time allowing the free market to operate and companies to be able to do what they need to do to manage a risk based on their own individual risk appetite. But we know that historically these types of companies come in with a very high risk appetite, right? Because the higher the risk, the greater the return. The more premium you can charge, the more dollars that come into the model. And it it would seem to me that if we're going to regulate at all, that's what we ought to be focusing on, is how much risk are we willing to let them assume knowing that we basically act as the guarantor of these policies and that it's going to hit the taxpayers of the state of Louisiana, right? Sure. And I agree with that. And I think that's why, again, and I'm sorry to keep repeating this, but it all comes back to you've got to ensure that they have enough capital surplus and reinsurance, because at the end of the day, that that's all that they can control as far as um, guaranteeing against their policies in force. So you're right that you need to diversify. Well, they, they, can, they, can control, they can control return on investment. And, you know, the thing is, is that when you're, when, you know, when you have an expectation that you're going to have an ROI of whatever that number may be, in the lean years, you can't be paying that in every lean year because you need to be socking dollars away in, in reserve to be able to, to cover these possible losses when the storm does hit. Right, and that's what I mean by capital surplus. You need to make sure you've sure. got enough cash on hand to cover the uh, amount of claims that you could potentially have to pay. And so I, I agree with you that they need to be making sure that they are keeping enough that they're not returning so much to an investor that they don't have the money to pay claims. But again, the, the levers that you need to be looking at is for solvency is the surplus and the reinsurance. The, the structure has very little to do with that at the end of the day, because regardless of how you're administering the claims, you still need to have the cash on hand to pay them. No, no doubt. But it, I mean, but, you know, when when you're managing the claims and and you're you're setting IBNR and all the act and following all the other actuarial uh, tables that are there, every time you're taking money out and passing it to investors, you're taking dollars out and they, and you have to go find this somewhere. Some some of these companies are actually borrowing capital, which is that's it. In my view, that's a disaster. <laughs> When we allow them to borrow capital, um, you know, uh, to pay these claims, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and how it's addressed in in this legislative session. And I'd love to have you back, Ben, when we get a clearer picture of what path we're going to take. Absolutely. I'd be happy to talk about it Um, again. I I, I think that we, we absolutely need to make these changes. I just think we need to make sure that we're focusing on the right things. Um, because if if we're if we're not watching the the solvency on that side and then managing what the claims actually look like and how they develop to show the cost side for the insurer, then at the end of the day we're not going to be able to change the market. No doubt, for sure. Ben Albright, CEO, Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers, Louisiana Independent Agents Service Corporation. Thank you so much for joining us. Truly appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you. All righty, we'll be right back, folks. 504-260-1870. 
on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Stay with us. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back, folks. We are joined by Ed Michel, Inspector General for the City of New Orleans, relative to an investigation conducted by his office into procurement of services from the Employment Opportunity Center for Employment Opportunities relative to the lot abatement program. Ed, welcome to the show. Hi, Neil. Thanks for having me on. Ed, I got to tell you, I read the entire report. I read all of the interviews. There's a part of me uh, that feels better about city government because it seems as though there were a lot of employees that were trying to do the right thing here. But what the big disappointment for me is that one person could influence this million-dollar contract and make things happen internally in violation of accepted accounting principles, in violation of, of GASB, in violation of just good common sense and, fi- and being a good fiscal steward. And they all knew of a relationship that may have existed between the vendor and this person, and yet they it was almost as if there was nothing that any of these folks could do about it. It was interesting reading. Well, you bring up a good point about, you know, generally accepted governmental accounting auditing standards, also known as GAGAS. Um, and, and, you know, these, these standards and practices are there to ensure the efficient and effective um, working con- conditions, especially when a city or a governmental entity is um, spending um, valued tax dollars. And so we, we just got to be better uh, when we're spending those limited tax dollars because, and, and I've said this time and time again, 
the city does not have unlimited resources, and we have to be good stewards with the limited resources we have. Another thing that struck me odd, um, and I know that you've heard of the heard about this, that there are a lot of vendors that are out there waiting to get paid 60, 90, 120 days, some refusing to even bid on work because they just can't afford uh, to be the working capital for the city of New Orleans by just not getting paid. There was a lot of work put in by a lot of different people in a lot of meetings about getting these people paid. And I'm curious whether or not you see this with all vendors. And it's just, it, it struck me as odd, again, in a kind of different way. Well, certainly, you know, we um, issued a report on procurement fraud last year, um, and one of the notations on procurement fraud that we um, noted and memorialized was that some vendors have a hesitancy um, about just that, about working with the city for fear of getting paid or for fear of getting paid late. And um, we suggested at the end of that report that the city initiate a survey to understand what some of these these concerns are, because when you have potential vendors who have concerns about working with the city or are hesitant about working with the city, it, it does a couple of things. But the main concern for me in that endeavor is um, it cuts back on the amount of people that are actually um, competing for a potential job. And when you have fewer competitors for the job, you aren't necessarily getting the um, right type of work at the most competitive price. So it hurts competition, but it also, um, I think what people fail to realize is it, it hurts the city in actually having the right person do the right job with the right tools to ensure that the specifications are met and the requirements of the city are met in an efficient fashion. What was interesting to me, and so this is a million-dollar contract for grass cutting, debris removal with the Center for Employment Opportunities. This is a company, a not-for-profit out of New York City. I, I, I looked at their 990 last night. Uh, they take in about 87 to $90 million a year in grant money, mostly government money, quite frankly, uh, that's given to this organization. So it was interesting that in one of the interviews that you had with, um, um, I forgot the individual's name now, excuse me, uh, Shay Zeller. And this is the individual that kind of was in the position, I think, to influence most of everything that went on with this contract. And there are many city employees that thought that she had a friend that was working at the Center for Employment Opportunities that the decision was made that instead of waiting on invoices to be provided by the Center for Employment Opportunities, that they would just make four payments of that million dollars a year in the sum of $250,000 each. And they actually admitted that they did so because this would relieve administrative burden within the understaffed lot abatement department from having to process multiple requests for reimbursement from this company. You know, you, you ask of, of city employees and public employees to treat this money as if it's their own. 
nobody in their right mind would get out in front of a company for two hundred for a quarter of a million dollars or a half million dollars and have no proof of work. I mean, it's remarkable. Yeah, that's that's a great point, and that's that's one of the violations that we cited, and it, it was a you know a potential violation of the cooperative endeavor agreement because you know the the CEA just did not authorize the city to make payments um, in the amount of two hundred fifty thousand dollars. As as a matter of fact, um, the cooperative endeavor agreement specified. Um, in, in very clear language that on the 10th day of every month, CEO would submit an invoice to the city for the work performed um, and that the city would make a monthly payment, and, and, and this is the biggest part, after the verification of services were made. So we, you know, we can't pay for work that hasn't been done yet. Yeah. It was kind of interesting, and then when y'all interviewed the the director of uh, the local director of uh, the Center um, for Employment Opportunities, I, I was kind of struck that she was talking about the burden of having to staff up. That's what they actually do. The burden of providing the equipment for the staff, and the staff, just for the benefit of listening audience, this is a program that attempts to hire unhoused individuals that are living on the streets as well as um, 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 folks that are coming back into society from serving time, prisoners that are coming back on a reentry type program. And it just struck me that, you know, complaining about the equipment and cutting lots and the equipment getting uh, broken because they're hitting debris in empty lots they allegedly do this all over the country. They're allegedly in 12 different states. I can't imagine that the city of New Orleans is the first place they hit a cement block while cutting weeds. Yeah, you know, that's a part of the contract that, you know, they have to just sometimes maybe realize, like you said, that that's just a part of doing business. But, you know, part part of our concern as well was that um, uh, we determined prior to entering into this cooperative endeavor agreement, some of the city employees realized that the land access management system, also known as LAMA, wouldn't be able to successfully track this work performed because of um, the software d- deficiencies. And um, and a lot of the employees knew that this was not going to actually be a proper mechanism for maintaining accurate accountability when you're, you know, spending this type of money. And, you know, a large potential violation here is was a violation of the Louisiana Constitution as well. And as you know, Article 7 of, of the Constitution states that, you know, we just can't um, provide any anything of value to any state or political subdivision or that shan't be loaned or pledged um, or any corporation, public or private. So when the city was making these $250,000 payments – for work that hadn't been done yet, you know, it, it's 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 essentially loaning out money. Invoices should have been prepared every month, and that's they should have followed the terms of the CEA, which they didn't. You know, the good the the good news here is that that we've identified um, about twenty five thousand dollars in unaccounted um, payments, which were made to the city for work which wasn't verified, and and we we promptly you know were able to get that money back. 
And then, you know, the city ceased on making another $250,000 payment, and then they didn't um, uh, renew it, and then that, that $500,000 uh, was returned back to the Wisner Trust Fund um, as set forth, you know, in, in, the, in the CEA because it wasn't used in, in that one-year term. So, and, you know, it's, it's our hope that, of course, going forward that the city will comply with these you know, generally accounting auditing standards and, and ensure that, the, again, the city's limited resources is used in an efficient manner because we, we just don't have the money to spend um, ineffective transactions like this. I mean, it's, it's our taxpayer dollars. Well, this was first paid out of a, a different budget um, account, uh, you know, um, account internally, and then it moved to being funds from the Wisner. And, and I'm pretty confident that had you not started an investigation of the Wisner, that we would have been out more than a half million dollars to this company. Uh, I think everybody's antenna and radar started going up because a lot of the, inter- the folks that you interviewed basically came right out and said, we started paying attention because we knew that the OIG was looking into this. Let's pick it up there, if you don't mind. We're visiting with Ed Michel, Inspector General of the City of New Orleans. We'll be right back, folks. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is my show. My friends come on and you know them. We talk about the sports you care about, basketball now, golf, and the metronome of your life, baseball. Whether it's opening day, the big tournament, or one of the majors, we have the best to preview it and break down just what happened. And let's not forget the important stuff, the amount of daylight where I live, the importance of speedies, and the rankings of beach-style pizza. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Sitting with Ed Michel, Inspector General, City of New Orleans. And Ed, I do want to get you back on next year, I mean next week, excuse me, to um, look to do your year in review of 2023, because I think a lot of the stuff that you brought to the forefront is incredibly important. But I wanted to finish up on this. Um, It was interesting. One of the directors said that the work was not being verified properly by the city and that vendors were actually checking their own work and submitting invoices to the city for payment without proper city verification. And you heard this throughout uh, a number of these interviews that were conducted uh, by you guys. But I also wanted you to address, um, there was a, a something that was revealed that said that they treated this as a sole source contract. Was that ever verified? Well, again, um, I, I, I believe um, through all of the interviews, one or actually several individuals may have said that um, the reason that this particular entity was selected was in addition to the ability to do the work, they also um, initiated in a program to, um, like you said before, get people who actually um, were trying to re-enter the workforce. Um, And so they had additional um, strategies to mitigate certain threats facing a, you know, certain portion of the population. But again, you, when, when you spend city money, you have to have, um, and you have to apply the necessary procurement practices in place. And the more people you have that are offering the services, the better opportunity the city has to get the services that it actually needs at the um, best price. Yeah, no doubt. You know, and I've, I've, I've said, you know, before, um, we would rather mitigate fraud, waste, and abuse um, through education and awareness. Um, and, you know, when you 
see us write these reports and publish them, um, at some point, um, it, it's our hope that the remaining um, city entities that are spending money will learn from some of these observations, and we won't have to, you know, do this again. Well, let's hope and pray, um, because I know that, you know, not to be judgmental, but over this past year, you have revealed this over and over and over again in a number of different avenues. And, and yeah, this is, I, I'd, I'd love to come back on with you next week. Um, we, in fact, we'll, for, we'll schedule you today. I'll have them call you today about coming back on next week, and we'll do the 2023 yeah, this, in review. Yeah, this was a great year. We, we for the first time ever, published 17 um, reports and recovered about $4.2 million. So it's, it's, it was a, it was an unprecedented year for us. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll, we'll spend an hour with you for sure. Ed Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today and the great quality work that, that you perform. Thank you, sir. All righty. We'll be right back. Scoot's up next. Scoot's up next, and it's free for all Friday. What do we have coming up, Scoot? A man dresses in drag to take his girlfriend's college exam. What the hell is the world coming to? <laughs> I mean, if you want to dress in drag, just dress in drag. You know, hey, you know, I'll go take your exam for you. I don't know. All right, look, we'll have a lot to talk about, but it is uh, it is free for all Friday, so we're going to have fun. We'll talk about the uh, NFL playoffs over the weekend. Oh, man, the Lady Tigers, they came so close last night, but uh, they didn't uh, didn't beat South Carolina. So, anyway, it's a free for all Friday, a lot to get into. Have a great weekend, Noel. All right, you too, my friend. I just want to know where you find these stores. <laughs> I'm scared. It scares me. Has, absolutely. I hope everyone has a great weekend, folks. We'll see you on Monday. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Old man winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, old man winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Celebrate and save at Ashley's Anniversary Sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep Mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.